Welcome to our new season of What It Takes. This season is brought to you by our exclusive sponsor, Google Nest. Nest Renew is a new service that leverages eligible Nest thermostats to help you use less expensive or cleaner energy at times when more carbon-free sources are available on the grid. Even a lot of energy nerds, you don't, they don't know about marginal emissions intensity. They don't recognize that the grid is fluctuating continuously between, from hour to hour, minute to minute. And so being able to kind of empower customers with the ability to automatically just use energy a little, when it's a little less carbon rich and kind of a little less of the strain on the grid, that is just this amazing thing that we can do. That's Ben Brown, the product lead for Google Nest. A bit later in the show, Ben will describe why Nest Renew is so valuable for people who want to support a clean energy future right from their homes. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse and managing partner of Powerhouse Ventures. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our climate-positive future a reality. The energy used in our homes makes up 20% of the country's greenhouse gas emissions. And the fastest way for residents to cut our emissions is to electrify the systems that heat, cool, and power our homes and our vehicles with heat pumps, solar, batteries, and EVs. These technologies are the pillars of residential electrification. But as more and more homeowners seek to electrify, they're discovering that a key piece of antiquated technology in their homes is holding them back from their all-electric dream, their electrical panel. And that's why our first guest on this new season of What It Takes, SPAN founder and CEO Arch Rao, is building the electrical panel of the future. Our homes are where we spend the most of our lives, and our homes are increasingly powered with uh, new technologies from electronic app devices that we use to new forms of energy like solar and electric vehicles and batteries. All of these flow through a electrical distribution panel in your home that is present in every home and every building in the world. To decarbonize our homes, we have to start at the power source, the electrical panel. This crucial piece of equipment that runs our homes hasn't really changed much in decades. Arch and the team at SPAN decided it's time to reimagine its role as an enabler of decarbonization. At SPAN, we are re-architecting this to be an intelligent power router for your home. And if I'm a SPAN customer and I have a panel in my home, what is that like for me? What do I see? What do I experience? When I think about a typical SPAN customer uh, today, what comes to mind is a customer that's um, adopting batteries for protecting their families during an outage, uh, a first-time EV buyer or a um, long-term uh, EV owner that is now looking to improve how they charge their vehicle at home. Um, and the SPAN panel and our SPAN charging product, SPAN Drive, allows the customer to be able to control what they, how they use energy in their home in real time. The SPAN panel gives detailed data on energy use from every device through a companion app. That makes it easy for a customer to see where they're saving the most energy, how efficiently each appliance is running, and how to control distributed energy resources. The goal of SPAN is to streamline the process of electrification with as few parts or problems as possible. And to make that transition to fully electric lifestyle, we need products like SPAN that can make it easier for customers to adopt EVs, to adopt heat pumps, to adopt solar. 
without the presence of technologies like span we're spending a lot more capital and we're making it harder for customers to make that switch and that's our core objective I sat down with Arch to talk about what it takes to turn the electrical panel into a product that people will actually care about and love. No customer wakes up every morning and thinks, today I'm going to go buy an electrical panel. So there's a lot of education that needs to happen along with all the engineering we have to do at SPAN. We talked about the valuable lessons he learned during his first time as a co-founder of a startup and how SPAN is making its mark in smart home electrification. We started with Arch's childhood in southern India, where cars were his introduction to engineering. So Arch, starting with your early life, you grew up in southern India with your mom and dad and brother, and your dad was a banker turned technologist who got in early on electric banking in the late 90s and early 2000s. And your mom was a middle school teacher who became a full-time parent to raise you and your brother. And you've said that your family would often call you out because you weren't super invested in math and science like your peers. Um, is that right? And you know, wh- what were you like as a kid? Yeah, I was definitely very interested and drawn to math and science, but I don't think I was uh, your typical academic student. I, I think I found that my interests were broader than just the classes I went to school for. And unlike my much more academically perfect brother, I was definitely the black sheep <laughs> of the family. Um, no, no, I'm sensing no competition there. <laughs> not at all. Not one bit. Yeah. Gotcha. What were you into? Um, I, I really liked... So social activities. I, I like. I liked debate and elocution. That's one of the things that I really enjoyed doing. I really enjoyed building things. Um, I remember back in high school, I wanted to go and take a internship, which is very uncommon in India, especially in high school, uh, at a um, uh, a car service facility because I wanted to understand what it would take to take apart, you know, a brake pad and put it back together, or take apart an engine and service it. And so I think I I veered towards things that were more hands-on as opposed to just purely academic. While in high school, did you have a sense of what you would want to do after you graduated? Not one bit, no. I think, (laughs) again, I I, I was uh, perhaps culturally already destined to go in the path of trying to be an engineer, um, if you will. Uh, But what form of engineering or what I wanted to do with my career was was, um, less than defined. Um, I think I really enjoyed understanding how things worked and, and trying to build things. And that's why when I left school or when I went to uh, my undergraduate program, I chose a, a less paved path of um, automobile engineering, which at the time mm-hmm. was a very new program that was introduced in, in, in South India. And it seemed like the best way for me to understand how things worked more so than uh, more so than a degree in electronics engineering or computer science, which was the rave at the time, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that was in 2000 when you went to University of Madras in India. Um, how did your peers and your parents feel about that choice? Were they supportive? Were they concerned? Um, I don't think they were concerned. I think they were generally supportive. And I think early on in my life, I had um, I had expressed both a desire and need to make my own decisions. So I think they had come to terms with that since when I was a teenager. So they were very comfortable with the fact that at least I was going to go do an engineering degree as opposed to not. <laughs> what form didn't seem to matter much to them. Yeah. Did you have a sense of entrepreneurialism as a kid? Did that resonate with you, even if you didn't know the term? That's right. Um, it, it was not a term that was used often, but I do recall my dad leaving a very comfortable uh, long, long horizon career at a bank uh, to go and found 
a young company, even though, even though it wasn't his own company, he was one of the early employees in the company. Um, so that gave me a feel for the the risk to reward aspects of it. Um, I remember it, it shifted our mindset as a family in terms of how we thought about, you know, what, what was a secure career job versus um, what it meant to take um, a, a financial risk or a bet on a new job. Um, I don't think it was it was quite the same as you know, starting a new company, but at the same time, I started to gain appreciation for what it was very early on. And I saw it in a very different light. I actually thought it was it was somewhat glamorous that my dad wasn't doing what the rest of the family had done for decades at that point. Mm-hmm. And then after finishing your bachelor's, you set your sights on doing your master's in the U.S. And I know you applied to the top 10 best schools in the country. Were you confident that you would get into, you know, one of them or all of them? Far from it. I think, uh, you know, when I was in college, I, again, struggled to stay focused on academics. Uh, I did fine uh, as a college student, but I didn't find it particularly challenging. I felt like we were learning a lot of what we'd already learned in high school without quite understanding where it was to be applied. Uh, I still remember when I graduated from college, I barely did because I did not quite meet the minimum attendance requirement for school, which was in the 30 five percent mark or something. <laughs> but but you know, nonetheless, I was like, if I'm if I'm gonna go pursue a graduate degree all the way across the world, then I wanted it to be something that um, that was notable. Wanted it to be an experience that was going to be fruitful. And so I, I only looked at universities uh, that were uh, either offering a specialized program in say robotics or automobile engineering, or universities that were top tier universities where there was an interdisciplinary approach to the, the graduate program. I don't think many people, including my family, were confident I would get into any of them. But uh, I, I, uh, strategically, I pushed for getting recommendation letters from a couple of researchers that I had spent some time working with. And I think ultimately that's what made the difference. It wasn't my GRE scores or my, my academic record that, that got me to Stanford. Uh, it was probably those ad hoc research projects that I got to work on that made a difference. And so you completed your master's in mechanical engineering at Stanford. What was your experience like there? And did you have a sense of what you thought you would be doing once you graduated from the master's program? Yeah, when I when I first got to Stanford, it was a very humbling experience. Uh, there was suddenly a very high density of incredibly smart and uh, well-accomplished group of people. And, and it was great to be at Stanford, but it was also a, a big cultural shift for me to understand how graduate school worked, right? Because it, it was it was a combination of pursuing interesting projects and interesting learning while at the same time uh, getting good grades. And I wasn't good at the latter from the beginning. So I, <laughs> I, I focused on trying to learn new things. When I started the master's program, it was in mechanical engineering with a focus on robotics. So I, I went and pursued classes in uh, not just in mechanical engineering, but in, in control systems, at, in the aeronautical department, in the computer science and the E or electrical engineering department. And that was really, really fun. And I still didn't quite know what I wanted to work on. I thought I wanted to build robots. Over the course of time, I started to gain an appreciation for the importance of um, energy and energy and our dependence on fossil fuels. And I don't think that quite happened until a year and a half, two years into the program, when I had spent uh, a few quarters as a research assistant in the engines lab. So that's when I started to crystallize in my mind what I wanted to work on. And that was increasingly things around energy generation, energy consumption, energy efficiency. And the sort of early introduction to that was uh, efficiency in, in combustion, so improving how engines and power plants worked. Did you think you would continue in that pursuit 
after your master's? Yeah, I, I started doing um, my PhD program uh, at, the, at the second half of my master's and then stayed on for a few more years in the, um, uh, in the engines lab at, uh, at Stanford. And uh, I thought what I was going to work on was energy efficiency for combustion. Uh, and quickly realized that, uh, well, I guess not so quickly, it took me a few years to realize <laughs> that incremental efficiency gains in engines is simply not how we're going to change the world. Like trying to get cars to go from you know, 30% efficiency to 33% efficiency was, was simply not going to be a game changer. And when I started to realize that, plus understanding that I didn't want to be in academia long term, meant that I had to leave the lab, leave the program and leave the PhD program to go, to go uh, work on products that would have a more near-term impact. Uh, and that's when, uh, in about 2008, I decided that I was going to drop out of uh, Stanford and go look for a job. Was that a hard decision, or did it just feel so obvious that you didn't second-guess it? Uh, it was actually a fairly hard decision because it, it seemed like it was the right hill to climb. I had, I had spent quite a, quite a bit of time uh, working towards my PhD, and there was this underlying expectation of going and getting the next degree once you've started it, right? Um, I really credit my advisor, Chris Edwards, uh, Professor Chris Edwards at, at Stanford, that helped me really understand that I was probably going to be better off outside academia, that that I was probably going to find more passion in building products and building companies than I was going to in uh, in research. And that that made the decision a lot easier for me. Do you see the through line of kind of this somewhat of an outsider status from being a kid to even what you're doing today? Does that resonate? You know, hindsight being what it is, you, you sort of weave together the storyline a little bit, right? I think to me, it's not surprising in hindsight that I did not end up pursuing an academic degree or, or, or a PhD, uh, despite the fact that a lot of my friends and peers from middle school and high school went on to do that. To me, it's not surprising that I wanted to build companies as opposed to work as an employee at another company. Because I, I, yeah, none, none of those things surprised me. I do think what made it harder uh, was being an immigrant in the U.S., uh, having to deal with the fact that I was on a student visa and subsequently a work visa, which added, at the very least, a few more constraints than you otherwise would. And the obvious sort of financial aspects of it, right? I, there's, there's increased risk in saying I, I no longer want to pursue a well-paying job and want to go start a company when, when you don't have a foundation in the U.S. when you start off, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so you, instead of continuing on the, with the Ph.D. program, you had an offer to join a national lab, but instead you connected with Joby Energy, which was a precursor to Joby Aviation, the company that aims to be an electric aircraft taxi service, uh, where right. you worked on airborne wind turbines, similar to Makani, and then later joined LCG Consulting, where you focused on energy modeling and price forecasting uh, before you were approached by Mark Chung to be a co-founder of a company called Verdigris Technologies. When you look back at all three of those roles, what stands out, especially at those first two, which were jobs at Joby and LCG, and then the decision to join Verdigris as a co-founder? Yeah. Joby was a very serendipitous but a very, very unique experience. Uh, Joby Bevitt, who founded Joby Photo and Joby Energy and subsequently Joby Aviation, is uh, arguably one of the smartest people I've, I've met in my life. Uh, incredibly passionate about what he does, but also arguably eccentric. And w when I had to make the decision between uh, moving to Santa Cruz and living in the mountains and working on airborne wind turbines, 
a mouthful and a difficult to explain decision, for me, it was an obvious thing to do as opposed to going to a national lab because it was just so different from other opportunities I could have pursued. I learned a lot uh, while at Joby Energy, um, not, not just in terms of improving my engineering skills in that how do I apply the engineering knowledge that I have to developing products like the airborne wind turbines that we were developing in Joby, but also how, how to build a team and how to, how, how to take a systems level approach to designing solutions to problems. And that was, uh, that was really fun. It wasn't until after I had left Joby and built Vertigris that I started to appreciate the value of all the stuff that I learned at Joby. At LCG, it was, it was very different. I, I moved so I moved from Santa Cruz. I decided to work at LCG to learn how energy markets worked. Uh, it's a company that developed production costing models that helped forecast energy prices, that helped forecast the impact of adding solar, wind, EVs to the grid. And this was in the 2000s when none of these had happened at a, at a scale that we see today, right? So to me, it was very interesting to do that forward-looking modeling. But the day-to-day aspect of it wasn't that exciting to me because we were mostly doing quantitative modeling and we weren't actually building products or solutions to problems that we were understanding better and better. So I was keen to go back to building products, and that's when uh, the introduction to Mark Chung and, and the, the, the founding of Vertigris happened. Vertigris was, again, it was a very challenging experience at the time. Uh, because it, it didn't pan out to be the the glorious Silicon Valley uh, founding experience that I wanted it to be. But it was, um, again, in hindsight, a phenomenal experience or learning uh, experience for me in that it really highlighted the importance of why it's important for founders to understand the technology or be close to the technology that they are trying to bring to market. The importance of not just building cool technology in a silo, but understanding the product market fit. And then third, why it's really important to think about people and partners as being key to the journey towards success, right? Your co-founders, your investors, your manufacturing partners, your customers, they all have to be bought into what you're doing. And if you're not, then the recipe is just not there to be successful. What were you working on at Vertigris? What were you building? Yeah, Vertigris uh, was founded at a time uh, when we had seen sort of the rise and fall of um, um, companies like Solyndra making solar in the U.S. in the 2008-2009 timeframe. So there was a shifted uh, focus and emphasis on energy efficiency. And energy efficiency meant you had to understand what you were consuming. And that's really where Vertigris was very interesting and was, was pushing the envelope on energy metering and disaggregation. So at Vertigris, the team had built a, a, a energy sensing platform and more importantly, uh, an, an AI platform for doing disaggregation where we could identify different appliances or devices in a commercial building, but also identify if they were underperforming or they were performing anomalously, right? So it was really neat technology, but the complexity of bringing that into commercial buildings, which are all very different, typically, right? You don't, no two buildings are exactly alike, both from the electrical infrastructure standpoint or from how they're operated. And then scaling that up commercially proved to be incredibly challenging. Mm-hmm. And I know when you left Vertigris, it was not your decision to leave and there were other things happening in your life that made that particularly hard. Tell me about that, right. that day, that moment, what was happening in your life? Yeah, um, I think it was towards um, the end of, spring, or maybe the beginning of spring in 20, 2013, and I'd spent about two years helping build Vertigris, actually coming on board as its first employee, founder employee. 
And we had struggled to find the right product market fit or raise the right kind of capital, but we were still chugging along. I think there was growing disagreement between where we wanted to grow and uh, how we wanted to take the company forward between Mark and I. And that eventually led to Mark deciding and the board deciding that I shouldn't be part of the company. It, I was completely blindsided by it, to tell you the truth. I wasn't expecting that to be the case. I was incredibly invested in this because this was the first time I had co-founded a company as opposed to Joby where I was brought in as an early employee. And it was complicated by the fact that I had to suddenly grapple with the reality of being an international uh, immigrant into the country without a visa status that uh, if, if I didn't have a job. So there was a lot going on at that time. Mm. And if I remember correctly, you had also just broken up with your girlfriend. Is that right? I think there was a fast follow-up within a month or so. I That's ended rough. up breaking up with my girlfriend. That's right. So it was, it was a rough. wonderful 30th birthday for me that May. <laughs> that is hard. Do you remember what you told yourself in that time to just keep going? I don't recall what I told myself. I'm, I'm pretty sure that I was, I was keen to sort of dust off and try to focus on what was next. Um, I started having conversations with a lot of old friends and mentors, including my professor at Stanford, who I, I think the world of, um, also reconnecting with friends like Joe Ben. And I think it was, in fact, it was Joe Ben who pointed me towards Tesla. Uh, him and JB had gone to school together, and he reconnected me with JB Straubel, uh, the then CTO at Tesla. And over a fairly informal breakfast conversation with JB, he, he talked to me about uh, building Tesla Energy, which actually wasn't even called Tesla Energy at the time. It was stationary energy storage, which was a small skunk works team within Tesla that he was passionate about and had been pulling together a team to start working on it. And he invited me to come and talk to the team. And that eventually translated into a job at, at Tesla where I joined as uh, an application engineer and uh, it, within the Tesla Energy Group. Hmm. Yeah. And I know you were there for five years. Uh, what were you working on? What kind of knowledge and relationships did you build while you were there? Yeah, I was very fortunate to actually see the the growth of an entire business unit within Tesla from its inception or near inception. So at Tesla, we built grid-connected batteries. At Tesla Energy, we primarily built grid-connected batteries. So think about products like the Powerwall, the Powerpack, and the Megapack, uh, which, which, are, which are its current form and version. But we built versions of it that predated it, far less beautiful and sexy, but functionally getting to the point where they could be tied to the grid. Um, so we actually started with um, commercial scale batteries, so batteries that would be integrated into CNI facilities. And we were leveraging the California SCHIP program, the self-generation incentive uh, program, that, that essentially uh, allowed building owners to, to get an incentive for awarding peak demand. So that's really where stationary energy storage within Tesla got started. Uh, and then that then grew into understanding the need for home backup and building, I, I think still continues to be the best in class uh, home storage solution, which is the Powerwall. And then realizing that there were applications at the grid scale as well, uh, which led to you know, hundreds of megawatt hour scale projects across across the world, in Hawaii, in Southern California, in Australia. So I was very fortunate to get to work on those products and get to see the growth of Tesla Energy beyond North America into EMEA and APAC and be part of that that journey. For me, uh, personally, it was a it was an exceptional experience in learning how to build an operationally successful enterprise. 
not just building cool products, which I had done before, like airborne wind turbines were super cool, um, AI-based energy metering was super cool, but I had never gotten to see uh, tens of thousands of installations. I'd never gotten to see uh, global deployments. And that was, was for me, uh, really formative as I think about my, my professional experience. And the other aspect of what was great about being at Tesla Energy was getting to work with some incredible people that, that brought experience in technology, that brought experience in operations, that brought experience in, in business development. Um, so many of our, our mutual friends like uh, Matteo um, or Drew Baglino or JB even, like I think I just got to learn a lot by seeing them act and perform and emulating from them. Given the work you were able to do there and the people you were able to meet and learn from, why did you leave and what was happening in your life at the time that, that caused you to leave? Yeah, having spent five years there, which felt like a lot more than five years, uh, not only did I get to see products uh, grow and get deployed globally, uh, I was also a part of the team that helped integrate SolarCity as we as Tesla acquired SolarCity in, into the Tesla Energy Organization. That was a complex integration, to say the least. Uh, te- Tesla is and I think has always been a technology first company. Solar City is a um, sales and services company. So they were fairly orthogonal entities. They were, they were quickly being merged together. I think that um, it candidly diluted some of the excitement around stuff that we were doing because it wasn't clear what we were focused on. Was it in service of a US-based entity doing solar and trying to attach storage? Or were we uh, a product company scaling up hardware and software uh, solutions? The other aspect that eventually became a factor for leaving Tesla was an increased focus on products like Solar Roof, which I think is a really cool product, but I don't think it's the game-changing product we need to decarbonize at scale. Um, I think there are a lot of existing technologies around solar, around batteries, around EVs, but I think what's missing to, to deploy these at scale is reducing the friction of adoption for the customers from a cost standpoint, from an installation complexity standpoint, from a from a uh, operations or permitting standpoint. And that started to surface as more interesting pro- problems that I was being drawn towards and Tesla wasn't uh, focused on. That's ultimately what ended up being the decision for me to leave. Coming up, Arch tests the waters to determine if there's interest in SPAN and decides to go for it despite hearing skepticism from his friends and peers. But first, a word from our exclusive sponsor of this season of What It Takes, Google Nest. Ben Brown is the product lead at Google Nest. He's been building home automation products for 15 years, including as a founder of Google Wi-Fi. Your responsibility as a product designer, product developer, is to build the best product possible, to just make it as easy and simple and enjoyable and make people's experience in their home better. Today, Ben is focused on Nest Renew, a new service that helps you support a clean energy future with your eligible Nest thermostat. And so if we can have customers at the forefront of showing the power of what we call energy shift, but being able to do that across millions of households to be able to showcase what is possible is something that we really believe is critical to speeding up the transition. With a new feature called Energy Shift, Nest Renew lets you heat and cool your home when more clean energy is available on the grid. And if you're on a time of use rate with your electric utility, Energy Shift can help you shift usage to times when energy is less expensive. We are all key components and key parts of that solution. The massive challenge in making that uh, work really, really well uh, without a ton of unnecessary infrastructure is really going to make it so that all homes and businesses are able to use energy in an intelligent way to really support that transition. 
Want to do more to address climate change? Nest Renew offers a simple place to start. To learn more about Nest Renew, visit nestrenew.google.com or click the link in the show notes. From the time that you left Tesla to starting Span, where did that idea for Span first come from? Uh, Again, I was fortunate to have seen thousands of installations around the world of solar systems, solar and battery systems, and in some cases, EV charging with solar and battery. Empirically, I was seeing an increased rate of panel replacements, no matter where you went in the world, in that the home electrical panel was often a bottleneck, or an increased amount of electrical system work that needed to be done. For example, you had to add a third-party meter to an existing panel. You had to add a sub-panel and relocate the loads. And these were very non-homogenous. Every installation ended up becoming a fairly custom design uh, for, for the homeowner or for that particular setting. And that, to me, didn't seem like an elegant way to scale the products and solutions uh, that, that, that a lot of us in this industry are developing and building. So it came back to this core notion of how do we accelerate the adoption of clean energy? Uh, how do we decarbonize rapidly? Because I think that's inarguably the most important, uh, one of the most important problems for us to be working on as a generation right now. And that, to me, was through electrification. Much like we'd seen the electrification of vehicles and where we are now relative to where we were a decade ago and what kind of impact it can have, I strongly believe that this is our decade to decarbonize our homes and our buildings through electrification. But that wasn't going to happen if the existing infrastructure, be it at the grid scale or at the home scale, weren't designed to adopt these electric products. Trying to change how poles and wires are deployed or increase the number of uh, grid assets, uh, I don't think is a very practical solve. It's definitely in the solution space, but not the most inexpensive or practical solve. To me, the solution very much is in how can consumers lead this electrification revolution by saying, I want products that are beautiful, functionally superior, and are easy to adopt. And that's where we started. Well said. So you took this idea and took it to your friends and peers and investors just to test the waters, to, to get their feedback. What was their response? Um, I'd say it was mixed. From, from some, there was a healthy amount of skepticism because we were trying to not invent a new product, but reinvent, reinvent an existing product category. Electrical panels have been around for a long time. Circuit breakers have been around for a long time. And, and I was on this mission to, to rethink it from the ground up. And so uh, there was certainly a healthy amount of skepticism for a number of folks. But at the same time, there were a number of folks that quickly understood why this was such an obvious solution, that there were folks that recognized that we could continue to circumvent the problem by building incremental solutions around existing limitations of electrical panels, or somebody had to come and reinvent the panel, much like Nest came and reinvented the thermostat. And for those that were in the latter camp, they were either excited to work together or invest in us, and that's kind of how we got started. As you were exploring the possibility of starting Span, what did you learn about the market opportunity for smart home electrification? Yeah, I think after I left Tesla, I had a period of around five to six months where I really wanted to spend time evaluating what I wanted to work on next. And the, the rational approach to that was actually deciding what were the things I did not want to work on. So starting with a fairly large number of areas where we could have impact on decarbonization, ranging from um, grid scale, long duration storage, to uh, energy efficiency in, in buildings, to um, EV charging solutions, to, of course, residential solar storage, etc. I, I started to 
eliminate things that were either not going to be interesting for me to work on or weren't going to be impactful in a, in a time horizon, like within the decade, that, that we could deliver. So that meant I wasn't going to work on pure science uh, solutions, which would take on the order of seven or eight years to validate. Um, that also meant I didn't want to work on products that were heavily dependent on regulation lining up in your favor uh, and or being path dependent on selling to uh, utilities. Um, I didn't want to work on software-only solutions because energy is an infrastructure-heavy domain. And I think there are a lot of inherent constraints with the infrastructure that we have today that needed to be overcome. And I wanted to build something that would be a consumer-led solution. Or I I wanted to work on something that consumers could directly adopt. And that sort of started narrowing down to residential-focused products that could uh, elevate electrification. And that's how how I arrived at the SPAN panel. Mm, Got it. Uh, So you started SPAN in June of 2018, and one of the first things you did was to build out your team. How did you go about finding and hiring those people? Yeah, it was on 6-12-18 that I decided to incorporate SPAN, and then I had to go get get people excited about it. Um, Fortunately, um, there were a number of exceptional folks that I'd worked with uh, at Tesla that were either leaving Tesla or were excited to learn about new opportunities to work on. And the first person to come on board was uh, Chad uh, Chad Conway, who worked on uh, Powerwall products at Tesla. And uh, he had seen exactly the same problems that I had seen in deploying products around the world and uh, battery products around the world. And he was excited about the solution that I was working on. So he was one of the first engineers to come on board. And soon we started to work together on attracting other folks that were systems engineers, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers. And at the time, our focus was not try to grow a commercial organization, but really just focus on de-risking technology. How do we get to a place where we can show that we can build a smart panel that is safe and is functionally superior to incumbent panels and batteries? And we set ourselves a fairly aggressive goal of within a year demonstrating that we had built a product. And that's exactly what we set out to do with support from uh, investors like Wireframe and Congruent and others. I was going to say, yeah, in order to prove out the tech, you needed to raise some capital. And you did in 2018, you raised a 3.5 million seed round. You mentioned Wireframe, Congruent, uh, Energy Foundry, Ulu, Hardware Club. How did you go about raising that seed round and what was that process like? Yeah, initially we we just, I went out to some um, friends and I went out to some very early stage, like pre-seed investors and offered up a safe note. And um, one of the, one of the groups that really stood out was Ulu Ventures. They had a very interesting decision analysis-based framework for making uh, an investment. And when we shared the product that we were going to work on and the impact it could have and the commercial growth opportunity, their their internal model, which they share with us, by the way, showed that we would have a significant return on our investment from an investment perspective. And so when they said when they said go, they first put in they, they put in the first half million dollars into the company. And very quickly, I was able to bring on board another half million dollars or so from from smaller groups, at which point I reconnected with Paul Straub, who had uh, started Wireframe fairly recently at the time. I think they were investing out of their first fund. And we really hit it off in in terms of understanding the problem space, uh, both given his background and experience in investing in energy companies before and being a homeowner himself and looking at solar storage, et cetera. Uh, And he offered to lead our seed round and... uh, and bring in other syndicate investors into the round so that we could quickly get the round in place so Span as a company could focus on building the product. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. It, Paul has been a phenomenal 
a partner and an investor and a board member at Span for, for the last four years. Mm, agreed. He's great. As a fellow, we, we, we've co-invested a few times and sit on a number of boards and totally agreed. Um, so you've, you've made your first key hires. You've raised your seed round from some great investors. What did you do next? Heads down on building the product. We, we got a little space in a now torn down building in, in Soma, uh, in San Francisco. It's, uh, it was a tech shop that was very, very poorly managed, but we got a little 500 square feet space that we made our own and we started hacking together systems. We started designing the mechanical um, design. We started putting together the electronics and we started showcasing how the functionality would work, which is how do you sense every circuit and how do you control every circuit in real time? And that quickly led to us getting to a place where we had the functionality working and I think had made the right architectural decisions, but wanted to make it a a beautiful and appealing product that customers and channel partners would want. Um, So we went on a mission to find the right industrial design firm. Um, So we went and talked to some very well-known industrial design companies, including gaming design companies, and we eventually landed on Bold Design. Um, So uh, Bold is the same company that has designed products like the Nest Thermostat and the Edo Wi-Fi router, and we found their approach to design very, very compelling, and they ended up being our design partners. And I mentioned that story because it's it's very unusual for a seed stage company with just a few single digit millions of dollars in your bank to say we want to go spend money with an external industrial design company. But from the very beginning, it was super important to us to build a, a physically or hardware and software product that was stunning. And I think we've achieved that. Tell me more about the cost to the customer for this beautiful, seamless you know, panel, but so much more than that. What's the benefit um, and mm-hmm. what's the business model? The Span panel retails for around $4,500 today. And we often sell it through channel partners like solar installers and storage installers, but in some cases through electrical contractors or even home builders. In cases where the homeowner buys it directly from us, which is a small sliver of our, our revenue today, we offer the installation service for it as well by leveraging a growing electrical contractor network that we have. So the installed cost for a for a typical homeowner will be on the order of seven seven and a half thousand dollars for our panel, and oftentimes the the value is the avoided cost that they see the benefit of right away. So if you were to get home backup, you're typically forced to make the compromise between a partial home backup, which means only a few circuits in your home are backed up, or having to spend money on multiple batteries, sometimes three or four batteries. So our product allows you to get whole home backup, which means every circuit in your home is backed up with just a single battery. So the avoided cost there is the cost of multiple batteries or the the benefit of being able to manage everything in your home with a digital interface through our app. Um, now with our Span Drive product, customers can also avoid an expensive service upgrade, which means by controlling the charger and by controlling the other loads in your home through our Span panel as your power router, we can pretty much every single home in the U.S. avoid the cost of thousands of dollars of a service upgrade, i.e. going from 100 amps of service to 200 amps or 400 amps, as the case may be. Got it. Who was your first customer? Was it Paul Straub at Wireframe Ventures or uh, (laughs) were there others? How how did you get your first customers? Let's see. Our our first channel partners were, again, friends of ours that we've worked with in industry for a long time. For example, uh, Josh Powell at Revolution in Hawaii has been a a long-standing supporter of SPAN and was the first person to 
to actually give us a purchase order for our panels after seeing the demo of it in 2019. We were yet to UL certify it, we were yet to go into production with it, but he was, you know, an an excited partner. So you had capacity to produce zero at the time of the order, is that right? We we weren't legally allowed to sell the product because it was UL certified yet, but we had strong partners and believers in what we were doing, like like Revenue Sun in Hawaii, yeah. Uh, And then we continued to, to refine how we positioned the product instead of trying to go through this complex process of showing installers how they could avoid cost, we really leaned into the functionality of it, right? Because we started to recognize that most solar installers don't have a detailed account on how much they spend per project. They have a rough understanding of how much they spend uh, on any given job, and that's uh, and they, they recognize that that has a direct impact on margin. So we started to solve for the functionality for the customer and simplifying the sale or simplifying the design process for the installer. And that's really where we hit a chord and started to scale up rapidly in 2020. In late 2019, Span raised a 10 million Series A led by Arcturn Ventures with participation from Capricorn, Wireframe, and others from the seed round. And then in late 2020, you raised an A1, a $30 million round led by Munich Re with Arcturn, uh, Amazon's Alexa Fund. What was it like raising the A and then the A1? And how did raising the A compare to raising the seed round? With, with each round that we've raised at Span, we've looked at how do we sequentially de-risk the company from an investor perspective, recognizing fully well that we are a capital-intensive startup, right? Hardware is expensive redesign and build. Uh, We are going to be dependent on channel partners to scale up the products we're building. Um, So we needed partners that understood that and wanted to be long-term partners for us. Not to mention, we wanted to be very aligned on the the big-picture vision of decarbonizing at scale. So after the seed round, we had uh, we had successfully DRS technology by showing that the product works, and now we were getting set to take on the product market fit risk, which is how do we, you know, de-risk from a UL certification standpoint? How do we show that the product has value to to homeowners and to our channel partners? And we started looking for investors that would that would be the right partners for us at that stage. And Arcton, uh, Murray McKeg and his team there have a tremendous amount of experience and focus on solutions that are about climate change. Uh, they call it climate tech, right, uh, or earth tech. And they, they were uh, introduced to us through some mutual friends, and they came across as being very sharp and also at the same time uh, very aligned with us on a long-term mission. So it was a fairly easy decision for us to have them come on board and lead our round. Uh, it was interesting. Uh, we were starting to think about pulling together a round, but we were also trying to think about uh, how do we think about growth beyond the energy channel, uh, Munich Re ha- is one of the largest reinsurance companies in the world. They have an investment arm that is increasingly looking at ways to employ data in the insurance domain, but also interested in energy uh, and the data put- related to energy um, use cases and energy applications. Uh, so we connected with uh, Matt McElhatton at Munich Re. It, it was an unusual connection because they were not your typical energy VC, but at the same time came with uh, a very strong thesis around the importance of data in the built environment. And that's really how our A1 came together. And strangely, I, call, I wanted to call it an A1 and not a B because we weren't in revenue yet at the time. And I felt like there was a need for us to be meaningfully in revenue before calling it a B. So while it was an up round, we called it an A1, if you will. Works works for me. Um, and in March of this year, of 2022, you did raise a 90 million Series B led by our friends at Fifth Wall and Wellington Management and joined by some new investors like Angelino Group and Robert Downey Jr.'s fund footprint 
Coalition and Van Jones Obsidian Investment Partners, uh, as well as previous investors. Uh, so you you were generate you are generating revenue now, given the B. Um, all of the capital that you've raised so far that's 134 million. When you reflect on fundraising from the seed to the recent B, what have you learned? Just how important it is for us to find the right partners. I think we've been really fortunate to have oversubscribed interest in every round that we've done. And it's it's a testament to the team that we have in that we've been super focused on execution, that every year or every time, um, not just from a fundraising perspective, but just in terms of our, our OKRs, we're focused on uh, delivering product, generating revenue, delivering a customer experience that's phenomenal, building out a channel of uh, resellers and installers that, that really stand out, right? So that's that's been our core focus from an execution standpoint. So when it came to finding lead investors or syndicate investors, it really was in a place where we could uh, we could select, if you will, the right combination of investors as opposed to being forced into picking the first check that we got or the first term sheet that we got. Um, and I have to say, I, I feel really, really fortunate to have all of the investors that you listed uh, on our cap table and on the board, and some of them are on the board. The Fifth Wall's new climate fund, uh, it, they just closed a half billion dollars. They just announced their first close of a half billion dollars. Um, they are super committed to to this goal, right? Uh, Wellington is a obviously a very well-known private equity firm, and now they're increasingly focusing on climate, and they're pulling together a new, new fund as well that's focused on on climate, and they have been incredible partners to us, both in the form of experience they have in building companies previously that are similar to Span, in that they were hardware companies challenging incumbent technologies and scaling through channels, and because of the long-term uh, nature of, of the fund itself, in that we're not looking to turn uh, flip the company in a couple of years. We're looking at how it's going to take on the order of a decade for us to build impactful companies and products. And this capital in your team, it's enabled you to generate some really incredible partnerships with utilities like Green Mountain Power in Vermont and regional solar installers like the one you mentioned in Hawaii, Revolusun, um, Texas-based Good Faith Energy and New York-based Sun Nation, um, and then partnerships with battery manufacturers like LG Chem and Tesla and SolarEdge. Um, what are you providing them today and what does the future of the SPAN product suite look like? We typically like to think of partners in three categories, a demand partner or a technology partner or a operations partner or a deployment partner, if you will. When we think about demand partnerships, we look to companies like Revolution and Good Faith Energy who are super aligned with the functional benefits that our product provides and are able to increasingly see it as a not as a bolt-on product to their sale, but a necessary or an essential part of how they offer storage or EV charging to their customers. In fact, uh, we announced this last year. With that same mindset, we formed an incredible partnership with Sundron. Um, so Mary Powell, who runs Sundron now, has, has been a friend of mine for a long time. And coincidentally, she was actually on, on SPAN's board uh, until she became the CEO of Sundron. And we found very, very strong alignment with how they're thinking about uh, what what Sundron is beyond uh, being a solar company, as they think uh, think about being an electrification company and how Span can enable them to get there. When we think about technology partners, we're looking for how do we provide an ecosystem of products that makes it easier for a homeowner to make that transition, right? So we think about battery companies like LG, we think about uh, inverter companies like SolarEdge, um, and we think about in the not-so-distant so, not so future, we're looking to partner with heat pump technology companies and electric water technology companies. And I think that's directionally where we want to go. Uh, and that's there we've found a tremendous amount of success in bundling products, if you will. 
On the deployment partnership side, again, we look for partnerships with electrical contractors and home builders and utilities, because ultimately they are going to be um, not just a source of demand for us, but are going to help us in fulfilling our, our mission to electrify, right? While we can build cool technologies, we need really experienced partners, uh, especially electricians, that can then install these in millions of homes. And that is still an unsolved part of the overall puzzle, not just the span puzzle, but the electrification puzzle that we're increasingly focused and working on. How many people are on the SPAN team today? And what have you learned about hiring since you started building the team? Yeah, as of yesterday, we're at 168 people. Wow. And Congrats. An, thanks. Yeah, it's been an amazing journey over the last four years. Um, we have a really high bar for who we bring on board, and we've, we've stayed true to that over the last many years. It's often easy to look at a hole in the organization and say we desperately need a resource and just bring in anyone that can fill the, fill the hole, fill the gap. But I think by avoiding that, we've, we've solved for really high quality people joining the team and they've, they've really been uh, instrumental in, in, in our success over the last many years. Uh, just about every founder that's been on What It Takes has been somewhere within months, weeks, days, or hours <laughs> of shutting their doors. How close has Span come and when was that? Uh, we have uh, never been hours or days or weeks away from shutting down, fortunately. Uh, we have uh, always, I think, had the foresight to start thinking about the next round of capital at least a few quarters out. I think the closest we've come is probably a few months out from running out of capital. The alarm bells haven't gone off yet. Let's put it that way. <laughs> That's good. Are you generally a, you know, a more chill person uh, if you were, you know... Two to three months away, would you be comfortable or would that be really uncomfortable? Well, I think I'm super chill, but I don't think you should ask me that. You should ask people that are <laughs> working at Span or my wife. They might disagree significantly. We'll yeah. Perfect. We'll do we'll do a follow-up. Um, if you could go back in time to four years ago when you were starting Span, what advice would you give yourself? Yeah. Going back four years, the advice I would give myself uh, would be to focus on on areas of impact where you really are a domain expert in. So for me, it while there were a lot of interesting projects to go work on, from you know, grid-scale storage to um, new forms of chemistries for batteries, uh, I probably wasn't going to be as successful at those because I didn't see myself as being a domain expert on those. Where I see myself as a domain expert is in um, developing physical products that combine uh, mechanical design uh, electronics and the systems level thinking around it. And that's probably the advice I would give myself today as well is focus on things that you know you're good at. Such good advice. Um, what has been the single worst day at SPAN? Oh boy, that's a that's a hard one. Um, there have been a number of small, n- not worst days, but bad days along the way as any, any young startup has. Yeah, I don't think I've really talked about this much uh, either, even with my team or externally. I think there have been inflection points along the way in the company, like you know companies that have been interested in acquiring us, or uh, investment opportunities that have fell, fallen through, uh, or misses in terms of people that we wanted to hire, and we we simply would have done a lot better with them in the team versus not. I think the last one, the last category, is probably the one that stands out as being, in my mind, some of the worst days in building span is when we weren't able to bring on board people that are exceptional into the company. 
Uh, other than that, everything else seems like it's it's uh, business as usual, right? You can have dust off from a deal or a transaction not happening and you go back to building the next day. Well said. Uh, what parts have been the most fun? Uh, again, it comes down to people for me. Like one of the one of the key aspects of starting Span for me was not just building a good company and good products, but doing so with good people. Uh, every day I come into work, I get to work with some exceptional people across engineering, across sales, across marketing, across operations, um, and that's really joyful to me. And uh, the other aspect of fun is, you know, as we as we hit milestones, right? As we go from the first home to the first, the hundredth home, to the thousandth home, to now approaching the 10,000th home. Like those are milestones that we like to celebrate together. And I think that's really fun. Has your leadership style changed as the company has grown? I'd like to think so. Uh, I think I'm adapting to um, both staying true to how I want to lead and also the fact that um, uh, a, a growing organization needs a different form of leadership. For example, I think uh, in the past, we were a very, very small team. Uh, it was easy for us to share information across the team, and decisions happen faster. Now we are, uh, you know, much larger company than we were in 2018, and I'm learning to be more reliant on senior leaders that are great at what they do and can therefore be can be my co-leaders in building the organization. Right. In terms of your leadership, what has your experience been like as an Indian American man and an immigrant? Uh, leading a climate tech company in an industry that is majority male and majority white, but increasingly Asian and South Asian? I will say I've had a very fortunate run uh, over the last many years, starting with uh, being accepted into Stanford, which many people didn't think I would get accepted into, to finding finding ways to progress despite adversity. Like when I talked about um, not having uh, a visa status that I had to contend with, I, I think I shared a story before about how uh, when I dropped out of the PhD program, I had to find a way to stay in the country while not being actively being a student. So I went and enrolled in a community college and maintained my student visa. Um, or And I was fortunate to have a friend that knew about doing that and connected me with the right community college to do that. Or when I left Verdigris, um, finding a way to quickly consult and hop jobs and maintain my visa. I think those are all uh, ways that I've been able to patch together the journey. And I think that's that's a, that's part of being an immigrant, a part of being an Indian American, is a struggle of finding a way to 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 succeed despite things that that are uh, that, that are otherwise easy by being an American. On a personal level, you are a partner to your wife, you're a parent to your two kids, and you're a founder and CEO all at the same time. What is it like being all of those things at the same time? Um, it's very rewarding, but also quite challenging. Um, I am very fortunate to. Um, have have a partner like Genevieve, that's my wife, who um, who's been has been an exceptional intellectual partner to me, but also a very um, understanding partner in many ways. She she is an energy policy expert. Coincidentally, she worked on everything from energy efficiency to electric vehicles to energy storage in over the last decade. She decided she made the decision to stay at home with our children when we had our first child, and that's actually in many ways enabled me to build Span. Uh, I don't think uh, it would have been possible for me to build the company that I built if it wasn't for uh, a strong partner like Genevieve. Uh, my kids are still very young. They're fine too. They are delightful, but can be rambunctious. So it's really finding the time to to be with them and be present with them when I'm able uh, while managing to build a company that's been uh, hard, but like I said, very rewarding. 
What will the future of smart home appliances and energy devices look like a decade from now? I think this is truly a decade to decarbonize through electrification. I think uh, I, I see us being able to make the switch from gas-powered vehicles to electric vehicles to electric uh, appliances like induction cooktops, heat pumps, electric water heaters, and either adopting solutions like storage for, for resiliency or being able to tap into technologies like vehicle-to-home for us to be able to get more out of the assets that we own. That's going to have a far more significant impact, uh, frankly, than I think even putting solar on people's roofs. It's, it's, it's a complex thing to do to, to put solar on people's roofs. Uh, the current cost of acquisition for the customer is fairly high. The design process is fairly long. The permitting process and installation process is quite expensive. And I think even if you succeed in doing that, you're still faced with the reality that you can't magically supplant the gas molecules powering your home appliances with those electrons coming out of your solar system, right? So a more impactful thing to do is to start relieving ourselves of our dependence of fossil on a daily basis. Um, so that's what I see the future of home looking like, is a fully electric home that is wonderfully managed by a smart panel like SPAN. And if SPAN succeeds, what does the company look like in a decade? Uh, internally, our goal is to is to be in 10 million homes by the end of the decade. That's a bloody ambitious goal. <laughs> uh, but, but if you look at it top down, it, it doesn't seem so crazy because just in the US, there are 15 million single family homes uh, that are going to require a panel upgrade if they choose to electrify. And if you look at it globally, you're talking about an order of magnitude larger opportunity in terms of homes that, need, that can be electrified and would likely need some kind of an electrical system upgrade. So to me, it seems very achievable, but the path to getting there is is not easy by any means. I'm happy you're doing it. We're going to close with our high voltage round, which is my favorite part. These are quick questions with quick answers, quick meaning, a few seconds. Starting with, Arch, if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? I'd be a bear. Strong, but warm and fuzzy. (laughs) Love it. What inspires you? Uh, The people that I work with. If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be? Uh, Maybe a race car driver, but electric race cars. Nice, nice. Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success? I rarely attribute my success to myself. I think I I would probably start with my family, my wife and kids, and of course, my, my parents and my sibling, my brother. Tell me very briefly about a specific time that you failed. I think I failed uh, when I was building Verdigris. I, I don't think I quite understood the, the challenges of building a company from the ground up. And like, like I mentioned before, um, not understanding the importance of knowing the technology that you're trying to build. It was hard at the time, but in hindsight, again, it was one of those rare experiences that people go through that, that really informs your perspective on how you think about building teams, building companies, raising capital, etc. What lesson has taken the longest to learn? That it's important to be patient to see results. Like, especially in the domain that we're in, it's uh, change happens somewhat glacially, but it's an important, uh, it's an important endeavor to, be, to stay focused on. Uh, and one of the things I have to remind myself, even with, with our team at SPAN here, is to not create a false sense of urgency. What's the best investment you've ever made? <laughs> Wait, you just laughed at some thought. What was that thought? <laughs> I was going to say, I, I quickly went to what was the worst investment I've ever made. And I think that was going to be a 1991 Alfa Romeo Spider that I bought. It was just oh, wow. 
it was a beautiful car, but such a temperamental car. I, uh-huh. I think I, I spent as much money fixing it in the five years that I owned it as I did when I bought it. And Rough. anyway, I, it just reminded me of the worst investment I've ever made. Um, <laughs> I think the best investment I've made is is in uh, is in building relationships uh, with people, with not just my family, but with mentors that that I can count on. Um, you know, be it, uh, be it friends in in grad school or people that I worked with at Tesla or people that I worked for. Going back to Joby, um, mm-hmm. I, I think um, that's probably the most valuable investment I've made. What is something that you thought was true that you no longer believe? That people will do something because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> when are you your best self? Um, when I'm not exhausted, probably. Um, it's been hard. It's it's been hard to find eight continuous hours of sleep recently. Probably after a really long bike ride. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, fun. We should connect on that. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll follow up with you. <laughs> yes. Road, uh, road biking is, is my jam, but I don't get to do it very often. But I do like the Oakland okay. Hills for biking. Second Fridays of the month, Power Ride uh, is up in the Oakland Hills, and it's a bunch of people in our sector. So it's a good Great. way to ride and hang out with friends. Yeah. Um, what is your worst trait? I, I think I'm impatient, and uh, there's, uh, that often creates a, a gap between expectation and reality. If you could change one thing about the world, what would it be? Find ways to eliminate the education gap that exists around the world. My second my second passion after energy is education. And I've seen over the course of my life, having lived in a developing country and now in the U.S., just how much of a disadvantage it creates. If there was just one or maybe two people who are going to hear this podcast, who would you want it to be? <laughs> It'd be great if my professor from Stanford listened to this podcast because I owe a lot of um, how I think about stuff and what I am today to him um, mm-hmm. from a professional standpoint. I also wish my dad could hear it. He's not with us anymore, but I wish he could hear that as well. But yeah. What is your best quality? Being able to assimilate a large amount of information and think on my feet. Finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because... They have the wrong people. If you really knew me, you would know... That I hate honey. success is Uh, delivering impact at scale or having a meaningful impact if I could have done one thing differently I would have I don't think I would have done stuff quite differently than I am uh, the, 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 the path that I'm on right now if the world knew me for one thing it would be I hope um, electrifying homes in the world I'm most proud of uh my family my kids Last question, to build a successful startup, what it takes is? A good set of partners, the team, the founders, investors. Back to the honey thing. What don't you like <laughs> about honey? I just don't get it. It's, <laughs> it's, it's got a weird taste and really weird consistency. It's so sticky. If you, if, if, if you, if you touch the bottle, you're left with a sticky hand for the rest of the day. <laughs> it, it is ironical. Yeah, it's, it's ironical that uh, in your question about what animal would I be, I said a bear. But, All right, uh, you don't even like honey. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, excellent. I was going to say, I truly don't get the allure of honey. Arch, really grateful to have you on the show. Really excited about what you're building and having watched the company from the very beginning to where you are today. I'm so impressed and inspired and excited to see you continue to reach all the milestones that you set. 
Thanks for having me on, Emily. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. Arch Rao is the CEO and founder of SPAN. Join us for news stories each month of founders who are building our climate-positive future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. I want to thank our exclusive sponsor of this season of What It Takes, Google Nest Renew. I'd also like to thank Sam S. 4141 who wrote in their review of the show that Powerhouse is truly at the center of the climate tech revolution. As an investor, a connector, a culture carrier, a podcast, and generally a leader. And so they get the absolute best people and know what to ask them. Thank you so much for your kind words, Sam. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse with support from Postscript Media. Powerhouse works with corporations to help them find and engage with startups that have the tech that they need to succeed. Powerhouse Ventures backs entrepreneurs building the digital infrastructure for rapid decarbonization. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund, that's powerhouse.fund, and follow us on Twitter at Join Powerhouse, and you can follow me at Emily Kirsch. I also have some exciting news. On September 15th, we're bringing back Powerhouse's annual summer party, New Dawn, for the first time since 2019. You are invited to join us from 5 to 10 p.m. at the Mostly Outdoors Double Standard in downtown Oakland for paella, cocktails, and an amazing evening with the people who have built this industry and those that are taking it to the next level, including many of those that you've heard on this show. Follow the link in the show notes to buy tickets. With over 400 tickets sold and with ticket prices going up on Friday, August 15th, make sure to get yours today. Listeners can get 10% off tickets using the discount code WHATITTAKES. That's the name of the show, all caps, all one word, and I look forward to seeing you there. Lastly, if you enjoyed the show, I would love it if you gave us a rating or a review on Apple or Spotify. We read and really enjoy receiving them. Or send this episode to a friend or colleague who you think would enjoy it. Our executive editor is Stephen Lacey. Dalvin Abawaji, Cecily Meza-Martinez, Anne Bailey, and Sam Wolforth helped produce this episode. Sean Marquand and Greg Vilfrank are our engineers. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes. <laughs>